Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 94. This week, we talk with Matt Winkler about the new Azure Data Lake service. Apple tries to maintain security. And Slide Enjoy is not what Carl thinks. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. This week, we have Matt Winkler. He's a group program manager on the big data team at Microsoft. Welcome, Matt. Oh, it's great to be here, guys. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Carl, uh, what do we got for the Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week? This week, the winner came from uh, a little conversation on Twitter. Uh, his name is Michael Zuhl. Mm-hmm. And he was talking in response to the episode we had on uh, working remotely, working from home, telecommuting, however you want to describe it. Uh, he said that he used to work uh, remotely for six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really liked a couple of his comments he had. He said he kept strict hours because he needed to train his wife that he couldn't just take off and do whatever he wanted. Yep. Even though he could, he just didn't want that getting abused. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely understand that point. You know, you know, my wife, you know, she really likes the fact that it is flexible, but she doesn't always understand the, you know, it works in the other way too. She really likes it when I'm done exactly at four and, you know, sometimes when I fudge my time a little bit, sometimes I need to work a little bit beyond that. So, yeah. you know, it's still something that we're working out exactly how our interactions at home, you know, work when we do have that fluid schedule. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He, uh, he interacts with us on Twitter all the time. So we really, uh, really appreciate his comments. Yes. And if you want to get mentioned on the show and potentially when the Infragistics Ultimate license, just like Michael did, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Uh, you can comment on Facebook, iTunes, and Stitcher. And we really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who's uh, done that know, already is awesome. We have so many great reviews on there. Yeah. And there's a few more out there uh, that I that I checked. He just uh, We just didn't pick them yep. for this week. So one other thing that I'd like to uh, add before we move on here is for the swag bag competition that we have going on. We've gotten a few more and I'd really like to get a few more, uh, people to compete with them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's been some really creative <laughs> things. People who have had their kids record, uh, stuff on their behalf. <laughs> I haven't listened to that one yet, but I love the ones that we've yeah. gotten so far. They're great. Yeah. I, I forwarded it to you last yep. night, Jason. You'll really like that awesome. One. <laughs> All right. So, um, a little bit, you know, you know, we just wanted to, uh, kind of touch also on the, uh, the working from home episode that we just did, because uh, one thing uh, we obviously didn't have time to cover everything. Um, That's a pretty broad topic. And we got uh, a pretty lengthy letter from somebody whose name will not be mentioned because he works in a sensitive industry. No, I thought his Um, name was redacted. (laughs) Yes. I, I, I copied and pasted redacted over his name everywhere just so we wouldn't screw up. Um, He said uh, eight months ago, he started working from home. Um, after working in an office for 30 years. So, you know, that, that puts a little bit of perspective, you know, he's, he's had, you know, extensive software development experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and he works with about 200 or so people, but they really don't have a lot of remote workers. Uh, so really his experience isn't the norm. Um, 
kind of like us, he uses Skype for business, but uh, where he works too, they don't really use it because they kind of just get up and talk to each other. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, you know, I think when you'd have people that don't use the tools that remote workers really needs, that adds a little bit of stress. I don't know if you've seen that, Jason, yeah. but um, he said another thing too, is they disable the cameras on their laptops because they work in a sensitive industry. So, I mean, you know, some of the things that we're talking about using video, you know, and all these alternate forms of communication really aren't available. Yeah. So I can see where that would be, you know, really difficult. Um, uh, another thing that he mentioned is being distracted by the internet. Um, one of the things that he mentioned is playing like NPR or other podcasts, um, yeah, he says he plays up you know, the background. I do that sometimes too. Like as you sit here and it gets kind of creepy just that it's, you know, dead silent. So you have to have like some kind of, you know, sound in the background. Yeah. Um, he also uh, mentioned that we didn't talk about the other side. How do people who work in the office, how do they react to being working with remote workers? You know, do they get resentful? Things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Have, have you like had any of those experiences or feedback or yeah i mean i i think it's tough to it's tough to go the other direction so if you have a team that's like half remote and a team you know the other half is 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 local then i think there's a challenge there because the the local team they might want to become remote but it's i think it's hard to do that transition you know because i just started remote uh so it just was really a non-issue um but yeah I, i think i think that 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 can be a challenge. I don't know about being resentful. Um, you know, everybody kind of makes their choices and they, they get advantages out of that. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I guess I haven't really been in that situation. I mean, we had, when, when we were at a last company, I mean, we had Brandon was remote and we were not, and mm-hmm. I never felt any resentment at any point. No, but you know, I can see there's, there's always aspects where the grass is always greener on the other yeah. side and you can see like a potential freedom or whatever, but there's also like, uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention on the last episode is everybody at, who goes into the office where I work, they have an espresso machine that they can just go to anytime. <laughs> and I'm not talking about like a, like a dinky Keurig machine. I mean, this is like a multi-thousand dollar, like full-fledged, you know, Starbucks doesn't have it this nice espresso yeah. machine. And, you know, that's something I don't deal with. I have to deal with my $20 AeroPress machine. Yeah. But you know, the, your, the gas money you save, potentially you could, yeah. you could pay for that. Well, I, I'm just saying there, there's always yep. things that you can nitpick oh, on yeah, the other yeah. side. Cool. And, you know, I think for the most part, I haven't really seen much of that, but you know, I just thought it was, you know, nice to bring this up since, uh, you know, he brought yep. it up. No, he sent us a really long letter. Really appreciate that. Um, that was, that was really good stuff. And, and yeah, talked about some of the things we missed we, we went way over on time. So yeah, we definitely didn't talk. We could have talked about that probably for another three hours, probably about coffee alone, but we don't need a, just a yeah. coffee episode. Okay. Well, let's get into the news. What do we got here? Uh, slide and joy. <laughs> so when I saw this, I'm like, Oh geez, this is going to be not safe for work, but really what <laughs> Really? That's where you went? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, well, I got this I got this on a, a, a Slack channel that you're not part uh, of. And that was like the first thing that somebody po- posted, like, is this NSFW? Yeah. Uh, but what this is, is this is an attachment that you can put on your laptop and it'll give you multiple monitors. Yeah. And these multiple monitors also like swing and, and, and pivot. So you can actually like swing it around and have it like show other people what you're working on and stuff like this. It is really cool. Unfortunately, it's pre-order only right now, but I still think this is really neat. And once they're out, I don't know. Yeah. I might have to like scrape the 
the budget, see what see what I can do to get one. Of <laughs> so, these. Matt, are you looking at this? Did you did you see this thing? I did, I did. That looks uh, <laughs> it, it looks kind of cool. If it delivers on what it's showing now, what I'm thinking though is I I, I just have this feeling that the monitor quality is actually crap because um, it's just it's so hard. I mean, like the the big computer manufacturers have a hard enough time like getting a good monitor into or a good screen into a thin form factor to throw two of those into this box and have it. So it slides out and you have these moving parts uh, is tough, but let's pretend like they somehow pull this off. This thing is amazing then. Cause you go from a single monitor to having basically three monitors on your laptop or three screens on your laptop. And I do like the different configurations. Like they showed you pinning these things back to the back and I, it's hard to explain, but imagine a triangle of monitors, you know, behind your monitor. So if you were like at a conference table doing a presentation, you can look at your monitor and basically share that with people like at the conference table. Um, that was a really cool configuration, or you can show yourself, uh, two monitors and then have one for the people behind you so that they can see it. Um, so there's some really cool configurations that you can do with these screens. Cause they, you know, they pivot around and they all kind of hang off your laptop. I mean, this thing just like, it looks like you use like some kind of really strong adhesive or like sticky tape to, to stick this to the back of your laptop. Um, but it's, it's such a cool concept in reality. It's, it's going to be all about execution. If somebody can pull this off, um, and sell this thing for, you know, a, well, I, actually, I don't think the price matters too much. If this thing was, let's say 800 bucks, for example, but it was like really good, it would be worth it. And if it wasn't too heavy, something you could actually travel with. So I, cool, I don't cool think idea. you'd make too many friends at a coffee shop though. If you roll up and <laughs> all of a sudden have three monitors going across your, your, your seat. Yeah. Especially at like one of those long tables where you, see, yeah. you actually take up like three spots at the table. Um, but man, that just talk about remote productivity though, um, wherever you go, if, if somebody can pull this off and the, the tech keeps getting better and better. So, you know, it's going to happen. I think we're going to be in a position where this actually happens. <laughs> Your kids seem to like it, Carl. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the next one you, you have code wars. So what the heck is code wars? So code wars is this really cool, uh, thing. If you're familiar with like the practice of code kata, that's like where you just solve little programming puzzles to like slowly and consistently enhance your development okay. skills. And what's really cool about this one, cause there's a ton of different ones out there. Um, well, first of all, they have a ton of different languages. So if you want to do coffee script or C sharp, Java, Haskell, Python, they got those in Okay, Go out there and vote for so, TypeScript Cause there's a voting thing here. Uh, TypeScript yeah, is there, in the voting list there. I voted. And out of these, uh, so the, the, they have them, all these little puzzles ranked by how difficult they are. And they kind of use like a, uh, a martial arts ranking system. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have them grouped by categories. So if you want to like boost like algorithms or um, like core programming concepts or math puzzles, I mean, they get really specific on like, like if you just want to practice those kinds of things, they let you do that. And uh, I, I think that this is really cool. It's not something I do all the time, but you know, I've got kind of hooked. If I've had like a few moments, I'll bust this open and, and, and get a few um, done out. And I just kind of like this thing for an occasional way to just make sure I'm staying brushed up on all my different skill sets. Okay. Yeah, this looks cool. I'll have to check this out. Anything else you wanted to mention about this? No, if this is something that's kind of up your style or personality, just check it out. Okay, cool. Uh, this next article, I love, 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 love. Uh, so this is Stack Overflow, the Architecture 2016 edition. So 
I love this because they're using, I would say, you know, a .NET Windows based stack uh, with SQL Server on the back end, which I'm sure will get Matt excited. Um, so they, the, the the cool part about this is they have one of the most uh, popular sites or group of sites on the entire internet. So they have, let's see here, from da, 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 a day of statistics. Here we go. 209 million HTTP requests who are to their load balancer, for example, uh, which is, which is just crazy. They have just some insane numbers here. Uh, <coughs> but what's what I really pulled out of this. So again, they're one of the most popular sites on the entire internet, but listen to this due to the optimizations and new hardware mentioned above, we're needing, we're down to only needing one web server. We have unintentionally tested this successfully a few times. Um, so they, he did want to make it clear that that's not how they want to operate. But the fact that a single IAS machine can handle uh, the traffic of one of the most busy sites on the internet, I think is is huge. And IAS, it used to get bashed a little bit because it was uh, it 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 had this pipeline where everything was sort of glued together, and it was um, often compared to Apache. And Apache had like more of a modular system. But IAS, as of like years and years ago, split apart that whole pipeline. It is blazing fast, and in fact. It's worth putting IIS in front of things like Node.js, which kind of sounds crazy, but IIS is is that fast and uh, and makes things like Node.js better. Um, so it gets used if you use a if you do Node.js in Azure, for example, in a website, um, IIS Node is used, which is a, a third party tool to make it so that you know for each core you'll get a Node.js process, and IIS will handle um, sending those requests back to the Node.js processes. But anyway, um, they are just on on, a, on very little hardware. They are running a massive, massive site, and I think this just shows, like, uh, you know, you don't have to be using all this open source stuff to 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 get to these kinds of numbers. Like .NET can be optimized in in such a way that this works, and this isn't even using you know the new ASP.NET Core stuff, which is orders of magnitude uh, more performant than even what exists today. So, any Matt, any comment on the on the SQL portion of this? No, no, it's it it's cool to see. Um, you know, I think that the one thing I I'd be interested in is kind of what they're doing from a, an analytics perspective. Yeah, you know, to understand what folks are doing on the site and those those types of things because that's where we see a lot of a lot of our customers who are doing the big data stuff. Yeah, that's a good point, and and actually, I think a, a, a good point there as well is that they um, they license all of their. I think they it's currently creative commons, there's some stuff going on, but they, you can basically download their data set, uh, basically all their questions. And, and I think just about all the data that they collect, you can actually download it. And there's actually a lot of third parties then that are, that are doing, you know, big data analytics on that and finding out really interesting things. So there's been a number of articles on that. Cool. So that, I just thought that was uh, that was a cool article. Uh, let's see here. What is the next one? C sharp.net for mobile development worth a second look. Yeah, this guy had mentioned that, you know, he's always been a fan of native development. Mm-hmm. Whatever the platform it is you write for, it, you're going to get the best performance and 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 whatnot. And what he's really seen is like, you know, kind of stepping back and kind of looking at the current state of things. You know, a lot of times if you're if you're an iOS or an Android developer, it's it's easy to have an attitude of anti-Microsoft for whatever reason. And if he he kind of uh, stepped back himself and took a look and said, like, actually, Microsoft is pretty good. When you couple that with Xamarin and you know PCLs 
and writing common code, all of that gets turned native yep. at, at the end. You get that output. And, you know, when you look at Microsoft's own kind of tech stack with universal apps and kind of some of the messy history it's had over the last couple of years, that doesn't factor in because when you look at just C Sharp and the .NET libraries, those have been consistent over that time frame. So even though when you're looking at it from, you know, one of these, you know, anti-Microsoft points, you know, the part that would be interesting to you as a mobile developer really has been stable and solid for quite a few years. Right. So, you know, sometimes it's just looking beyond um, your own prejudices there. I mean, there's some really cool things in C Sharp that you're not going to see in in other languages. Um, The async await alone is is really cool when you can bring that to iOS. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's Xamarin. It, it's there's a whole bunch of stuff that .NET brings to the table whenever you're developing an iOS. Another one that I remember from like the early days is like parsing XML, and I would say like parsing JSON now. So I've tried even in uh, Swift parsing uh, JSON, and oh, it's just it is such a travesty. It's just it's unbelievably crazy how they have you do that um, compared to like .NET. We're using you know JSON. Uh, what is it? JSON.NET? No, what is it? Um, yeah. or the Newton soft JSON.net. Yeah, that's JSON. Yeah. Using those libraries is, is just incredibly easy or even the stuff that's built in the .NET framework. Like it, it makes it as easy as it should be. And, um, you know, so there, there's some advantages there cause there's, there's things that you have to overcome whenever you're, whenever you are using Xamarin. I think we, to do this justice, I think we need to have another Xamarin episode. Um, cause there's pluses and minuses. One of the things I ran into is, you know, you go into the Apple watch and like Xamarin doesn't support it yet. Uh, but it's one of those things where they're going to support it at some point and, uh, you know, and then it'll probably be the best way to actually write an Apple watch app. We'll have to kind of wait and see. Um, so there's a lot of depth to this one. Uh, and then the last one here, the this is what everybody's talking about, the, this Apple, this Tim Cook letter saying, hey, we don't want, you know, our, our devices are secure. We do full device encryption, uh, which uh, which Windows does as well uh, with BitLocker. And then I think the mobile devices are just, they're encrypted by default. And basically there's a case now where the government came to Apple and they said, oh yeah, that's all cute. Uh, you know, please make it so that that's not the case. Uh, basically they want to add in a, a backdoor or hack this somehow, which is really, I, I think that what everybody's saying is if you, if you open this just a little bit, that puts their foot in the door to, to make it so that, um, uh, you know, pretty much any kind of law enforcement can get at this whenever they want. And the bad guys can get at it, which is, which is totally legit. Like you either, you're either secure or not secure in this case is kind of my opinion on it. So I'm going to, I'm going to give kudos to Apple for doing this. I know uh, Microsoft is doing a lot of similar things on this front. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that they're getting so much press for, for fighting against this there. I, I think there's a publicity aspect to this for sure. Like in the end, they, they might, the, the, they'll probably have to give in. They just, they'll be forced to, um, and then they'll say, look, look, we, we fought for your rights, but you know, whatever, at least, at least they are, <laughs> that's what they're doing the right thing. I think. Yeah. So specifically what's going on, you know, for those who don't know the backstory, a real quick recap is in December, there was a San Bernardino shooting in, in California. And at the output of that, you know, there's this iPhone that the FBI wants to have access to, but they enabled that, um, uh, one of the shooters when on their iPhone, they enabled that, Hey, after 10 attempts, mm. we wiped yep. the phone. What, what 
FBI is specifically asking for is we don't, they're saying we don't want to break your encryption, but we want you to no matter how secure the device is, um, if they have that enabled, we want to be able to disable that wipe feature so we can brute force attack it. Yeah. And and apparently, if that's not enabled, they can get into the phone just brute force in like a half hour or a few hours or something. Yeah, I like mean, that. to me, it's all the same thing, right? Like either there's a security hole or there isn't. Yes, and and, and that's and, and and kind of my point is, or my opinion is very similar to yours. Like th- this this letter that Tim Cook wrote in a very public fashion obviously has a lot of PR potential, but at the end of the day, um, you know, standing up for people's rights as a whole it doesn't matter what one individual person or small group of people you know do that's not right i mean standing up for our rights is for privacy is is always better than not doing it so good on them okay should we move on to uh data lake okay excellent sounds good to me so matt um so my first question actually a little tiny bit of backstory the you know i was I was talking to somebody about Azure data lake and they were like, Oh, I, I hate it when Azure does that whenever they take like regular terms and they, they, they name their services after that. And I was like, it's like, what the heck that, that I said, I love that about Azure. Like what, what AWS does is they, they just come up with some sort of random name where you can't, you can't uh, tell what it is. And, and actually somebody had published out there, um, AWS services in plain English so that you sort of could translate that. And I, I did the same thing for Azure, but at the end, like most of the services were actually named really well. Um, so I actually really like that. It's just called Azure data. Like, I think it's very clear what it is. So my first question for you is what's the difference between a data lake and the Azure data lake? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, you know, it's, it's one of the toughest problems in the uh, technology industry is how do you go name something? Yeah. The code is easy. It's the, it's the uh, naming. Naming and versioning. Uh, there's <laughs> yep. there's no shortage of brain cells that have been that, that have been killed on these exercises. Um, you know, but but you know, typically in Azure, we we stick with uh, you know what we what we call descriptive names uh, for the services. Um, you know, mobile services, app services, websites, mm-hmm. media services, databases, those types of things. You know, and. Uh, you know, to get to your question about what is a data lake versus the Azure data lake, you know, the the data lake is this concept that's kind of emerged as uh, as the big data uh, ecosystem has evolved, which is this, you know, if you think right now, uh, the way a lot of companies do analytics uh, is that they have a data warehouse. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a data warehouse, uh you have to be, it's, it's, it's a very modeled environment. You have to think about what are the questions I want to answer? What are the reports I want to run? What are the, uh, you know, what are the, what's the schema? What are all the objects? And so you have to kind of spend a bunch of time up front and you, you spend then additional time taking the actual data that gets generated from your devices or your web apps or, or, or your customer interactions. And you do a lot of processing or ETL to get that into your warehouse. Yep. And, you know, <clears throat> what we've seen happen with Hadoop, with the, with the other big data technologies is it kind of turns that a bit on its head um, in that it becomes very, very cheap to keep all of your data around. Um, and, once you have a mechanism to keep all of your data around very cheaply and you have a way to write different kinds of code against it, you start kind of moving away from this kind of highly modeled 
uh, relational data warehouse world to where the, to this this notion of the data lake, which is I keep all of my data in one place, and then I can actually bring a variety of different types of compute engines on top of it. Um, you know, some people are going to want to write SQL because that's what you know everybody knows, and that's what their tools speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've all you know pr- you can walk up to just about any developer, and they can probably whiteboard out a syntactically correct select statement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from an early age, we're taught the relational grammar. And uh, and that's really great when you have data that's shaped as a rectangle, you know, when you have tables and tables related to tables. Um, but there's a lot of other types of processing that people want to be able to do. So yeah, my, you- my experience is that like, this is like a six month process of going from like the source of the data to getting the right place, transforming it. You actually get it into a widget that's displayed somewhere and then, you know, you, you present it to the CEO and, and Carl was actually there. Like, this is a real scenario. Then you like hand it over to the CFO, the CEO. And he's like, no, no, that's not really what I was looking for. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. you're like, no, there goes six months. Well, and, and then, you know, like the other thing that we see is oftentimes in those systems, your transforms are lossy because you don't have a cheap way to keep all of the data. Right. So you get rid of stuff. And so then when the CFO says, hey, this is great, let's add this other column, (laughs) you kind of can't go back to day zero and just add that column. So now you have to do kind of this goofy stuff where, hey, uh, everything before the last 30 days, we don't actually compute that value. And it becomes kind of very hard. Whereas if you've got all the data around, it's, it's much easier to kind of generate that. Yeah. But then the the other thing is, you know, there's kind of this rise in other ways that people want to process data. So they want to do machine learning. They want to analyze, uh, uh, you know, a really large graph, uh, you know. And what we're seeing is a lot more analytics are getting powered by code, not just by SQL. And so, hmm. uh, you know, the, the kind of the hallmark of the data lake is it's a place to keep all of your data. And it's a very easy way to have lots of different types of computation on top of that. Okay. And so... Typically, uh, you know, if you look at what uh, companies are doing uh, on premises, they're realizing this with Hadoop clusters. Um, Hadoop gives you a cheap way to store all of your data. Uh, it gives you ways to secure that data and govern it. Uh, but then you can do different things. You can write SQL on top of it using something like Hive. You can do machine learning programming with something like Spark. Um, and there's kind of all of these different ways for people to interact and program uh, that data so that they can all kind of discover the insights that are important to them. And so inside of Azure, that's what we're doing with the, the Azure Data Lake services, uh, which is actually a set of three services, um, a store, uh, which is the Azure Data Lake store, uh, the HD Insight service, which is our managed Hadoop service. This is really great for people who have a data lake on-prem and want the and they're, so they're using Hadoop and want to move that to the cloud. Uh, and then we have the Data Lake Analytics Service, which is a super convenient way that the only thing you think about are, these are the types of jobs that I want to run. Okay. So well, you kind of mentioned these different services already, and I kind of want to dive into them. Because when I when prepping for the show, the first thing I did is I went into the portal and I did search for Data Lake. Because yeah. I assumed it was going to be a service. And I noticed that there's the Data Lake Store and the Data Lake Analytics. Can you explain um, how we should use those independently and together, yeah. you know, you know, you know, why are they set up as these two different services? Yeah. Like that? And, and, you know, in, in some ways it's because we, we realize uh, kind of going back to that, that principle of a data lake, which is people want to bring different types of compute. 
Uh, and one of the things we've recognized is they may want to use something that's not one of our services. So they may have a, a Hadoop cluster that they've deployed into IaaS machines, but you still want to be able to party on all of that data. Hmm. So that's a little bit why we kind of separated these things out and said, hey, there's a store service, there's an analytics service, and then there's this HD Insight cluster service. Um, you know, but really, it, let's start with the store because that's kind of the bedrock uh, of it all. And the way to think about that is if you are storing or generating data that you want to do analysis on, the best place to put that is going to be Data Lake Store. And there's really three reasons for that. One is we've built the store so that uh, you don't have to worry about running into a limit. So you're not going to all of a sudden run into this limit of, hey, a blob can only be so big, or you can only put so much data into an account. Um, because we actually have customers today that are using uh, you know, things like Blob Store or S3 uh, that run into these limits. Um, and then it forces them to have to change their application. It forces their business users to have to think about, oh, when I query the really big file, I have to do this kind of wonky thing because I've sharded it across multiple storage accounts. We don't want you to have to kind of worry about any of that stuff. So that's one thing that's nice about it. The second thing is we've built it um, with kind of enterprise security in mind. So all of the files and folders and things are going to be ACLed with Azure Active Directory. Ah, okay. That's uh, interesting. Which is kind of cool because what yeah. it means is that, which can also, of course, be federated with your Active Directory that you're running yeah. on-prem. So here at Microsoft, if I want to share something with someone, I can pretty easily walk up and say, oh, I'd like to add, you know, uh, Redmond Savine R. That's my buddy who sits down the hall. Mm -hmm. I want to add him to get access to this. And I can do that, and then he gets access as well, and it's just with, you know, his domain credentials. He doesn't have to do anything else in order to get access to the data. So that's the second thing that's nice about it. And then the third thing is the API that we've put on top of it is HDFS, which is the de facto industry standard for big data applications to access files. And so kind of any open source project in the big data space speaks uh, the HDFS API in order to access data. And so that means all of those things can talk to the data that sits inside a data lake store. Now, somebody told me that that's web HDFS. Is that is that true? And what is the difference? I'm not an HDFS expert. Yeah, you know, that's it's that's basically what we've done is we've built on top of the REST API, which okay. is formally called you know formally called uh, web HDFS. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it basically inside of the HDFS project, there's a client that will be able to consume that, uh, and then that's that's the same thing that then gets consumed by all of the open source projects that want to be able to talk to big data stores. Okay. Yeah. And then you were going to talk about the, the analytics service then. Yeah. Um, let, let me first talk about HD insight. Cause oh, that sure. kind of, that kind of leads the way to the analytics service uh, pretty cleanly. Um, so HD insight has been around for a while. I, I, I've been on the team for, I think five years now uh, working on it. Uh, we've been generally available in Azure for two or three years now, and it's our managed Hadoop service. Uh, and so what HD Insight allows you to do is walk up to Azure, deploy a cluster that's running Hadoop or Spark or HBase or Storm, which are all kind of different projects uh, in the big data space. And then we, Microsoft, run that for you. 
So we monitor it. We wake up at three in the morning if something breaks. Uh, we give you an SLA on that cluster. But at the end of the day, the thing that you've got is a Hadoop cluster. Uh, you know, that's that's running your jobs or it's not running your jobs. It's, you know, but then you're still paying for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's for, that's, that's, that's been pretty successful. Um, but again, it's kind of, you still have to think about deploying a cluster. You have to wait for the cluster to deploy. Uh, you pay for it if you're not using it, um, you know, if it's running and you're not running jobs. And so the analytics service is another layer of abstraction on top of that, which is really about, hey, let me go and author a job to do something interesting, you know, process all of my web logs or all of the HTTP requests that came in over the last five years. Uh, And I actually, the only thing I pay for is when that job runs. And so I get to say, hey, I'd like this job to execute on 200 nodes or 50 nodes or 5,000 nodes. And that job gets those resources instantly, runs. You only pay for the resources while you're using them. And then when it's done, You've got your output and you're done. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about Infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, They have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done. So you can show this to the stakeholders and, you know, sell your ideas. Yeah. What I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, what, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you can try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos, so you can try it out for a month, download the demos, and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. It's funny, because I, I keep uh, putting off like learning some of these things, and uh, you guys just keep making it easier and easier so that I don't have to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it is kind of... For somebody who's new to the big data space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm obviously biased because I work on it, but um, I, I really think the analytics service is probably the easiest way to get started with big data because you just okay. walk up and you create an account. The account doesn't cost anything, and then when you're ready, you know, write some code and then say go. Okay. Um, and so it really is, uh, you know, kind of big data as a service. Okay. So the 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 analytics then points at the store or can you point it somewhere else? I mean, are those, is the analytics sort of tied to the store then? So it, you know, when you deploy uh, an analytics account, you have to specify a data lake store account, okay. um, you know, because that's, that that's the default storage yep. that it'll use. Uh, we can also query data that sits in Azure blob store. 
you can read and write data that sits in Blob Store. Uh, so all of your data that you're writing today into Blobs, you can use uh, in this space. Uh, the other thing that you can do is uh, you can federate queries over SQL Database, SQL Data Warehouse, or SQL running in an IaaS VM. Uh, and we find that to be pretty useful for people who want to be able to combine you know, the data that they have living in a database uh, with the raw data. And so an example of what some of the things we've done there, uh, you know, we've got a SQL data warehouse that keeps info about all of our customers, um, you know, kind of where they're located, uh, you know, what type of account they have. Uh, and that lives in a SQL data warehouse. Um, and so what I was, what I'm able to do is run a job that takes does some interesting stuff on all of the HTTP requests that we've gotten for the service. And then I can actually do a join to the customer data. So I can see, oh, well, actually, all of our customers in Asia are, you know, experiencing a higher degree of latency than our customers in Europe. What's going on there? That is uh, really cool. And so it lets me be pretty agile and kind of flexible, you know, to reach out and get to the, the data wherever it sits. Man, I could have used this a few years ago. This is really cool. <laughs> so what's kind of fun? Yeah. So what scenarios did you have in mind for this? Was it you know I've I've heard like mention of like this will work good for like IoT scenarios, but like what what was in your mind whenever this was being designed? Uh, what what were the scenarios that you were really trying to go after? Yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of it's it's a fun space to work in in the industry right now because uh, it it sounds a bit cliched, but almost every kind of customer we talk to has a big data use case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but really where we kind of see a lot of momentum, um, we see a lot of momentum with uh, retailers, uh, you know, people who are running e-commerce websites or people who are running, you know, uh, brick and mortar retail stores that are looking to understand more deeply, you know, their customers or what, you know, what products are moving and why they're moving or, you know, building recommendation engines. We see a lot of people in that space. Uh, we see a lot in the, the IOT space, and I'd actually split that out into uh, manufacturing as well as energy. Um, so we do a lot of work with people who are doing uh, wind turbines and generators and, and those types of uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, and then I would say the, the third one where we see a lot of traction and that we kind of think about a lot is uh, around finance. Uh, if you think about kind of, there's a vast amount of data that exists in that space and they're always trying to look for new ways to pull more signals together and try and do, you know, more strange and unique correlations and, and those types of things. And so I'd say those are, those are kind of some of the scenarios. Um, we actually have a lot of uh, game studios uh, as customers uh, because if you think about it, if you if you and five of your buddies want to start building a game, you know none of you are going to start by building that on prem. You're going to go to the cloud, uh, and so that kind of is a, a nice place where data is getting born in the cloud. And so it's very natural to say, oh well, I'll use a cloud service to do all the analytics on top of it. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So I, I'm trying to compare like a data lake to other things that I know. So how does it compare to a data warehouse? Is this going to like replace a data warehouse or is it going to augment it? Is the data warehouse part of the lake? You know, yes. How does that yes. Uh <laughs> All of them? All of them. <laughs> um, you know, I think the, the, the data lake uh, is kind of indicative of the way we see things evolving moving forward. Um, 
you know, uh, I'm hesitant to kind of say, you know, none of us are going to wake up tomorrow and find that we're not no longer going to use our data warehouses. Um, you know, these things have been tuned for decades. Uh, you know, entire organizations inside of companies are built around them. Um, you know, they're very good at what they do. Um, what we see mostly right now uh, is a lot of uh, using big data systems like a data lake to complement a data warehouse uh, because the data lake, it's going to be a lot cheaper to store your data. And so we see people landing a lot more data inside of the big data systems. They curate it, they mine it, they you know shape it, they refine it, and then they load that into their warehouse, right? So like one of the, the a, a good example of this is uh, a company that we work with that manufactures wind turbines. Um, and uh, the wind turbines produce uh, a, a, a set of data every 25 milliseconds, right? It's the state of the machine and how it's, mm -hmm. how it's, how it's working. And that volume of data, it would be absolutely uneconomical to put all of that into a data warehouse because it's, there's just too much data and it'd be too expensive. Yeah. Um, and nobody's ever going to go look at that t single 25 millisecond granularity record. Um, it might be useful if you're trying to do some really interesting, you know, predictive failure, you know, trying to predict failure of a machine. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they'll do is they'll land that raw data into the cloud. They'll process it with a big data system in, and they'll basically, you know, pre-aggregate that into five-minute or fifteen-minute or hourly intervals, and then that's the the data that they load into the data warehouse. And so they keep using the warehouse. They keep using Tableau or Power BI or Excel or whatever um, against the warehouse. But now they're actually using the big data systems to per to have a whole lot more data that's ultimately, you know, powering the warehouse. I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. Um, and so, you know, there, there is a there is a thing. Once you do that, you have to worry about moving data. And when you move data, there's latency. And so, you know, over time, you're already seeing in the Hadoop space more and more interactive capabilities. Um, you know, but for the foreseeable future, both of them are going to coexist very peacefully next to each other. Okay, really cool. So how much, you know, you mentioned like I can put however much data I want into this data lake, but, uh, you know, between us and our listeners, like what, what are the actual limits? Um, so I believe, you know, we've tested uh, about a three and a half petabyte file. Um, <laughs> like we, one we, file. One file that was three and a half petabytes. <laughs> we we could have kept going. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, in terms of the overall account size, I mean, there's... Uh, virtually no limit. I mean, you know, there's there is ultimately a an amount of capacity inside an Azure data center that we have, but <laughs> presumably we're buying hard drives fast enough that it's not a problem. Um, you know, and then what 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 we will do is we will give uh, customers the ability to have kind of controls on that. Um, you know, you probably don't want Joe in accounting kicking off a script that generates a three and a half petabyte file um, because somebody's got to pay for that. <laughs> um, you know, so we will kind of have like kind of governance and controls uh, on the system. But, you know, uh, we we really don't want people to have to worry about running into a limit. Yeah. So three and a half petabytes. I mean, just so just so people understand that. <laughs> I mean, that's like. That's what, like four million gigabytes, almost. <laughs> uh, 
Yes. Because at yeah. the 3.5, I'm just going to geek out here for just a second. Yeah, there's some it, commas uh, there. Yeah, so it's uh, 3.6 million gigabytes. It's more than 3.6 million gigabytes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a big file, I, I think most people would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, and that's just kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of representative, um, you know, we, we run a very, very similar system inside the company, um, you know, and we do see people who get uh, files that are in that size, yeah. um, you know, but it, it really is about when you, when people don't run into those limits, they can be more productive. Like they can do, you know, hey, I do want to try this experiment uh, and, you know, not run into this thing about, oh, hey, sorry, you're at 500 terabytes. Sorry, you, we won't fit anymore. Yeah. So if I double click on that file, uh, will that open in Notepad? <laughs> um, it, it, not, I just tried, not easily. It's funny. I just tried to open a log file the other day that was like too big for Notepad. I had to. I had to pull out VS Code. Yeah. Uh, your uh, your ISP will start throttling you pretty quick uh, after like the first week. So I should um, be. I shouldn't be on like AT and T uh, like wireless. <laughs> no. 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 Four G. Like yeah. Particularly if you're paying per gigabyte. Oh, uh, Okay. Okay. So, you know, looking at other aspects, what what kind of performance char- characteristics do you should we expect out of a data lake? What does it compare to? Yeah. You know, uh, I would say it, the a lot of the work that's ha- that happens in a data lake is batch processing. Um, you know, it's not it's not the interactive, you know, hook up Excel to SQL Server and, you know, kind of instantly do lots of pivot tables, you know, where it's going back to the SQL server and kind of, you know, sub-second response times. Um, you know, the there's kind of a couple of different ways to, to think about performance when we talk about big data. Uh, one is kind of the end-to-end latency. Um, you know, we see customers running jobs that range from, uh, you know, a minute or so uh, up to, you know, I think we've got one customer that has a job that they're running right now that's about 32 hours long. Um, you know, they, they do that weekly. Uh, they're processing a, just an, an enormous amount of data. Um, and so then the other aspect is really kind of scale, uh, which is kind of how much data can you process? How big, how many compute, how much computing power can you throw at this? Um, you know, and th- this is something where uh, you know, we have customers that are running in the, the thousands of concurrent compute containers. Um, and then once you kind of get within that, then you kind of can start talking about, hey, for a specific query, what kind of performance are you going to get? And for a lot of the big data stuff, what they end up doing is going back to the uh, the the standard kind of data warehousing benchmarks, so TPCDS and TPCH, um, you know, and we'll operate that over a terabyte of data or 10 terabytes of data or a petabyte of data. Um, and you know, kind of get a result, you know, and, and there are, there's a bit of a trade-off there, like, you know, how fast do you want it versus how much do you want to pay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there, there are places where you can query, you know, multiple peta, m- multiple terabytes of data in, you know, in, in under a minute. Okay. Um, but there, like, like any perf, like I, I feel bad. I sound kind of like a consultant. It's a huge, <laughs> it, it depends. Oh, absolutely. Um, but like, are we going to, you know, if we have like hot spots in the data, is that sort of handled for us? I mean, are, are we going to just, are there, are there, any, are there anything, is there anything specific that we should sort of watch out for where we're going to have performance issues or is it just something that we probably don't have to think about? 
we try and we're trying to build the system so that you don't have to think about it. Awesome. Um, you know, and we. So it's not like SQL Server where there's like things I can tune and things to look out for and that. So th- there, there are. Um, we try we try and do a lot of uh, optimization for you up front uh, so that you don't have to think about it. But then on kind of the back end, we've got a set of tools for developers to use to be able to see, hey, do I have a hotspot? You know, a common cause of that is something that's called data skew, uh, which is let's imagine that you're uh, processing uh, a computation that ultimately has to be done on a single node. Uh, so like you're doing a sort uh and you're doing that, you're sorting by, say, zip code. Now, uh, 95% of your zip codes, you know, maybe only have uh, a couple of thousand entries or addresses in them, which all get sorted very, very quickly. But then when you get the zip code for, you know, Midtown Manhattan, uh, you know, that's a massive one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we will see there is is kind of data skew. Um, and then the and there are kind of tips and tricks for avoiding data skew. There's other things you can do about pre-sorting, or you can put an additional filter on there so that it's more parallelizable. Um, and then within the query engine, we do have ways to provide hints for some of that stuff because the the optimizer does the right thing most of the time. Uh, but then in the cases where it doesn't, we try and let you find where it isn't doing that really well and be able to provide a hint to to kind of get a better better uh, optimizer behavior. Okay, cool. Uh, so you mentioned earlier, like this thing, you know, is exposed as HDFS. So um, does that, so that pretty much means that like any existing tools that work with HDFS are just going to work with this? I mean, is that, so it's going to mostly work with the tools that I'm using today? Yeah, for the, for the most part. I mean, there, there's, there's a couple of updates that we've made to HDFS that we've, we've contributed back to Apache uh, okay. specifically to add uh, OAuth in there as an authentication scheme. Um, that's kind of the magic that lets that whole Azure Active Directory stuff work. Um, and so as as more tools uh, kind of consume uh, an updated version of HDFS, they'll pick up that capability. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, uh, Right now, uh, all of our uh, our HD Insight clusters can be deployed uh, against that. So that's got the whole Hadoop and Storm and HBase stacks working against this. Uh, and then we're working with all of the major Hadoop vendors um, in order to make sure that they, they support it as well. So what kind of new tools or technologies are out there that can kind of already utilize a data lake? Yeah, so... Um, you know, one of the ones that that we're kind of excited about is uh, a new language for big data called USQL yep. uh, that's available in the in the analytics service. Um, and so that's kind of something that we're doing. We're happy to talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, in terms of kind of the other things, it, it's really the you know really it's it's working with the various open source projects, and so. Uh, Hive gives you a SQL syntax. Pig gives you a data flow language. Mahout lets you do machine learning. Spark lets you do all of those things. Um, and it's really kind of going and working with those tools. Uh, kind of that's our priority is to make sure that those those different analytic engines can all work against the data that's here. Yeah. So we you mentioned USQL earlier, and I I watched like a short video on this, mm-hmm. and this is sort of mind blowing. So. I first looked at it. I'm like, oh, you know, it's it's you know another way of doing like big data querying. But then, 
then I, you know, like I actually do- dove into it and in, in that it starts with like this, this extract statement where you're saying like, here's what I want to pull out. And then you have C sharp code and then you have, um, some, some extra code, I think to uh, actually, I'm not sure what that last part does. I haven't looked at it in a while, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, the fact that I'm able to actually like write some, some C sharp code to, to do this is mind blowing because, you know, the problem I always had with, with SQL, I could, you know, SQL is just different than code, you know, that in, in fact, I've seen people manipulate T SQL and bend it to their will and, and make it sort of do things that code can do. Um, and then I know in SQL server at some point you could do uh, like managed extensions where you could actually call in a C sharp code, but I don't know. It was a, it was a pain and I don't know if it ever caught on, but this like makes it look like amazing for doing big data. I mean, I can finally in, in something that I can understand, go write this statement and throw some C sharp code in there and actually do some big data stuff. So, I mean, is it, is it really like as awesome as I'm saying? And do you want to talk about UC a little bit? Uh, we think so. Yeah. Um, you know, so a little bit of kind of history on this uh, is inside the company, we've got a system called Cosmos, which is Microsoft's big data system. It's where Bing keeps its copies of the internet and <laughs> asks it questions and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Um, and probably about eight, eight to 10 years ago, we started with this language called scope. Um, and you know, inside of Microsoft and in any given month, there are thousands and thousands of developers that write scope jobs. Um, and USQL is the evolution of that language called scope. And there's a, there's a research paper. If you go on the internet and search for it, you can, you can find the research paper that we wrote about it. Um, you know, but, but really what we started with was this premise that a lot of people like SQL. Um, they like the ability to think in terms of relational algebra and select statements and they like that. Um, but when you think about a lot of big data jobs um, and big data programs, you know, if you think about how do I index the internet, um, there are a couple of places where SQL doesn't really work there. Um, and so if you look at scope or if you look at USQL, we start with the kind of the SQL syntax that everybody knows and loves. Um, we add the ability to operate on, you know, unstructured or semi-structured sources, not just tables. And so that's the extract statement that you see uh, at the top of a USQL program, which says, hey, this is the schema that I'm going to read out of this thing. And this thing could be a text file, it could be a JPEG, it could be a movie, uh, it could be an Xbox memory dump. Um, it really could could be anything. Um, and so that gives you the ability to operate over all of your data, is that, that ability to kind of do that extract uh, on, on anything. Uh, the next thing that we added is, you know, SQL is very much a query language, which is you write a query and it gives you some results. But oftentimes, you know, big data programs are, are, are just that, they're programs where you actually want to do a, a series of things. Uh, and so what we've added then is really a data flow concept, which allows you to build up, a, you know, a pipeline of these are the transformations that I want to do. These are the queries that I want to do and build that up. Um, that gives us the ability to optimize um, the entire query, which lets us, you know, be more performant when we start running at a really large scale. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing that we've done is, as you as you mentioned, we've added the ability to have uh, C sharp uh, in line, and that's really important 
the C sharp aspect is important because there's a lot of C sharp developers, but it's it's important because oftentimes in these types of things, you want to reach out and have your own user code. Um, the example I always like to give is string manipulation. I can never remember how to manipulate strings in SQL. Oh, I know. Like I go, to, I, <laughs> I go to Bing, I end up on Stack Overflow. An yep. hour and a half later, I'm copying a regular expression, and you know we all know how that ends. <laughs> um, whereas, gosh, what I'd really like to be able to do is just you know use the .NET, you know, string .contains, pass in a lambda, you know, do a filter, like, gosh, I know how to do that. Yep. Um, and I'm very productive doing that. And so that's why we think it's really powerful to be able to put user code inside of the programs. Yeah. So we're we're pretty excited to get uSQL out there. Um, and, you know, we've gotten some good feedback from customers. We're starting to get, uh, we're starting to get really interesting feature requests, which is also fun. Um yeah. Yeah. I think this is, it, it just feels like the first time that the, the big data is accessible to me. You know, I could always, you know, I, I, I talk to big data people and they're like, oh yeah, totally. Just set up your own HD insight cluster and, you know, set this up. And then they start talking, you know, pig hive and they start making up words. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's like my, I'm like writing down all these things to learn. And I'm like, okay, I just, I can't, I can't learn 12 technologies, but if I have something like USQL, it's like, okay, like I can grasp that. And then does uSQL end up running in, is that what you use in the, in the data lake analytics then as the query language? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the query language that's in data lake analytics right now. That's awesome. So I can throw my data in the store. I can point analytics at the store and I can write my uSQL queries and boom, I'm, I'm querying and doing really awesome stuff with big data. Yes. Yeah. Basically. Awesome. <laughs> that, that is a two thumbs up for that. That is pretty cool. Yeah, but I want to step back, you know, I, I'm architecting like a system. When should I choose when I need to store some data in the cloud between blob storage and something like a data lake? Yeah. Or is there really a cutoff? You know, to, to me, I think about that as um, if you're, if you're, uh, let's see, if you're, you, if you need a store, uh, you know, and just like any of these conversations, there, there may be a bit of religion to the debate, um, you know, just from, a, <laughs> yeah. from a, you know, um, it's it's just like which which uh, of the twenty no SQL offerings should I go use? Yeah, um, you know, but but really the way it kind of breaks down for me is if if you need a a store for your application, uh, the kind of the canonical example is I'm building a site that allows users to upload their own content, you know, pictures or documents or something, uh, and I need a, a a backing store for all of that data. Something like Blob Store is going to be great. Um, if you're loading data that you know you're going to be doing analytics on top of, you want to do machine learning on because you want to be able to predict what uh, what item they'll want to put in their cart next. Um, you know, so things like log data and telemetry data and click data and and uh, uh, all of you the the ordering data that kind of goes in the system, landing that in Data Lake uh, Store uh, is going to set you up to do to be better suited to do all of the analytics you want to do down the road. Um, and so to me, it's kind of, if you're powering an app, uh, then, you know, the, the exi kind of existing stores, you know, whether it's blob store or DocDB or SQL, uh, you know, you can choose from the vast array of them, use those for all of the data that you're going to be kind of optimizing your business around or looking to understand your customer behavior better, put that into data lake store. And it's not a, it's not a, uh, um, it's not a one 
you know, one-way street, if you have data in Blob Store that you want to be able to analyze, you can still do that. Um, you know, both Data Lake Analytics and HD Insight talk natively to Blob Store. So you can read all of that data. Um, but as you get into kind of the larger scale analytics, you'll be better suited with uh, Data Lake Store. Okay. So all this stuff is really cool. So now we got to talk about how much does this cost? Okay. Um, <laughs> so a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. The uh, Data Lake Store is priced like a storage service. So there's a, a fee for... Uh, the amount of data that you're storing, uh, and then a very nominal uh, but present transaction fee, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's expressed in the fractions of pennies per, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we we don't see we don't see customers typically having a substantial amount of their bill coming from transactions. Yeah, and if um, you do, like, you kind of know who you are. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that's, it's, it's priced very similar to that. Um, you can go to the Azure pricing page and, and check out the actual, the, the actual pricing of it. The, uh, HD insight service is priced per node, uh, for however long you're running the cluster. So, uh, HD insight lets you pick different VM sizes, just like you can pick in Azure. Each one of those has a cost. Um, and so it's however many of those times, however long the cluster is running. And then data lake analytics, uh, you pay per query uh, and or you pay per job. And so for however long the job runs at whatever kind of, you know, whenever whenever you submit a job in data lake analytics, there's a little slider that lets you say kind of how much compute power do I want? Um, the further you move the slider to the right, uh. um, it will cost more, but you should get your query done faster. Oh, that's interesting. So I can say I have lots of money, but no time. Or I can say I have, you know, not much money, but I have lots of time and, you know, I can, so it sounds like I can just dial that in however I want for that particular query. Did I mix those up? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, no, yeah, you can, you can model that, um, you know, and so kind of we see some customers that are very latency sensitive, you know, they want, they've got an internal application that needs to be updated with the most recent data from the website with no more than 10 minutes of latency. Right. And so they, they've got, they have to get a query done in, you know, five to seven minutes. And so they're going to, you know, they're going to move the slider kind of as far to the right as it gets them that answer in five to seven minutes. Yep. Um, There are other customers who, you know, look, they're kicking off a job at midnight that just needs to finish by 6 a.m. And so, yeah, it's okay that it takes five or six hours. You know, it's a resilient system, like individual task failures and all that stuff is handled for you. So, yeah, I'll set the slider at two. uh, And, you know, as long as I have my query, my report by 6 a.m., I'm okay. Yeah. Um, so we try and enable customers to kind of have that flexibility to do the trade off. I really like this because, you know, I've been seeing these stickers and they, they're kind of infuriating to me. I don't know if you've seen them. It's, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it, it basically said, so it was something like the, the cloud is just somebody else's server. And it's just, it's just infuriating <laughs> me because like what we're talking about right now, I think is just an amazing example of the, the value that the cloud is bringing. And as, and as we stack on these new technologies like this, it just keeps getting better and better. Like, like I said, I don't have to think about the HD cluster, HD insight cluster and how to configure that. You know, I get all those advantages, but now just being able to say like, you know, here's, here's how fast I want this to get processed. Um, and it's just a corresponding cost that is that is definitely not just somebody else's server. That's somebody else's like, you know, sliding between one server and a, a thousand or whatever's going on behind the scenes. 
is is just is just amazing and it's it's not just a matter of having it be somebody else's server yeah you know it, it and that's you know we see a lot of customers who uh you know they do that the for them the cloud is i'm gonna let somebody else run all the infrastructure for me mm-hmm. you know and but i'm gonna keep kind of doing things the same way i can do them on prem um and that's 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 fine a lot of people are doing that um you know, we think there's a lot of value in providing higher level services that enable these types of choices, you know, uh, and then, you know, we we can do it as Microsoft because we're running at this very large scale with all of these customers, you know, whereas on-prem, it'd be really tough for somebody to say, yes, I've got a thousand servers that kind of just sit around and, you know, if somebody wants to use them, they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 just a very different cost model. Yeah. Um, and so we think there's a lot of flexibility there and a lot of a lot of value for customers. Um, you know, I was just in a, a briefing yesterday with a very large um, retail customer, and you know, they very much want to get out. You know, their their IT department is. You know they're running a bunch of servers right now. Uh, you know whether it's a, a Teradata data warehouse or a, or a Hadoop cluster, and they want to get out of that business, yeah. right? They want to be able to focus on, hey, how can I help the business units learn something new about their business, not how do I kind of manage my server capacity? Right. Exactly. Very cool. <laughs> so, is there any future plans or features that you can tell us at this time? Oh, absolutely. We have plenty of them. Oh, but that I can tell also, you. Just, just, um, just, for, oh. just for our li- It's just between you <laughs> and me and our listeners here. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, the two data lake services right now are in preview. Um, you know, so really what the team's doing right now is, is focused on getting those to general availability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so that means uh, addressing a lot of things like perf and reliability and compliance. Um you know, uh, lots of kind of, uh, you know, not uh, news breaking newsworthy uh, type work, but that's what we're spending a lot of time on. Um, you know, it's kind of a fun phase of the pro- of the project because customers are using the bits and they're telling us what they like and they don't like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think every month we're shipping updates to the USQL language, which are just reacting to customer feedback. Um, you know, lots of little kind of things there like, hey, uh, I'd like a better way to operate on JSON documents or, hey, I'd like to, you know, be able to skip header rows when I'm when I'm reading a file, um, you know, so we're doing a lot of those types of things, um, you know, the, and then the, the other big thing that we're, we'll be doing is kind of rolling out to additional Azure data centers, um, you know, beyond that, there's lots of fun and kind of exciting things that we're up to, but, you know, really the, the team right now is really kind of focused on kind of getting that to general availability because that's when, you know, customers can broadly take a bet on it and start using it for their production systems. Right. Okay. Uh, anything else you wanted to, to mention anything that we skipped over that, that you think is worth mentioning? Uh, no, I mean, I think we, I think okay. we covered a lot. Yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm I, I don't know if, if you get feedback that says, you know, something else, I'm happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to talk more, <laughs> okay. um, but I think we covered a bunch. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, you know, I'd I'm encourage excited. folks to, to, to give it a try. Uh, you can go to azure.com slash data lake, uh, to kind of get started. Um, you can download the tools for visual studio. You can actually run all the queries disconnected from the cloud. Uh, so there's a local execution environment you oh, can okay. play around with. And so oh, that's also I can work on like a smaller data set and then, and then publish yeah. it. Okay. Okay. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So give that a try, you know, reach out to me, find me on Twitter, send me email. Um, 
you know, uh, would love to kind of hear what, hear what people think. Is it uh, half price while it's in preview? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's good incentive for our listeners to get out there and start using it while it's, while it's half price. And then, uh, yeah. and then you're good to go once it goes GA. Yes. Cool. Okay. And then Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? So kind of reaching back to the good old bag of basic things is Google fonts. And, you know, this, this is something that, you know, I've used quite a few years for web assets. So like if our, our website uses some Google fonts and that's really cool. But um, another, you know, additional tip with Google fonts, if you look at their about page, all of these fonts, there's like seven and then hundred, hundred and some uh, font families, they're open source. And they say that you're free to share them, modify them, download them, use them in print, your computer, you know, all sorts of places. And one, one thing that I've used is as I, I have a handful of apps in, in the store and the ones that I've paid attention to design wise, all are using Google fonts. And, uh, I, I really like it embedding them, you know, just adds a little different, unique touch to my applications. So just remember, you know, Google fonts is out there, not just for, for web assets, uh, not just available via the CDN. They let you download them and do whatever. And, uh, I believe they're also out on, uh, GitHub too. So you can actually modify them. Cool. Cool. Okay, Matt, we have a little game that we play that everybody loves. What I need you to do is pick a number between one and four. I'm going to pick an integer. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it has to be real. Okay. Whole number. Okay. Uh, okay. I've got one. Okay. Well, you can tell me what it is. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I thought you were going to like read my mind. Uh, <laughs> you uh, picked, okay. uh, you picked three. Uh, no, I picked two. Oh, okay. Well, everybody usually picks three. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Okay. So you picked two. Oh, this one's really bad. <laughs> oh no. Should I, I can pick three. No. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll let you pick two, and then Carl can take three. Okay. okay. <laughs> On a dare, would you rather have to dig a booger out of a stranger's nose or allow a stranger to dig a booger out of your nose? <laughs> oh, that's just painful. Uh, <laughs> gosh. Um, yeah, what was three? Um. <laughs> uh, three was Carl's. <laughs> oh, three is Carl's. Uh, Not his gosh. nose. Three is his question. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, then, yeah. Gosh, uh, I'd go with uh, this is this is the point at which our guest regrets coming on the show. Yes, the uh, I would go with the second option. Okay, It'll allow a stranger to pick one out of your nose. Yeah, uh, nobody's judging you. Okay, Carl. Uh, <laughs> I guess I yes. have three. <laughs> would you rather go with a friend's family to a fancy restaurant for dinner and keep string beans hanging out of your nose for the whole evening, or take your shoes off and set them on the table next to the food for the entire night? Uh, I would go with the first option. Really. I just, I just, I don't know. I'd go with the shoes. Take off your shoes and set them next to the, to the table next to the food for the entire. Yeah. Your, your, your shoes are right next to all the food. Yes. Yeah. That's just gross. I just don't want string beans in there. (laughs) Although if I don't have the string beans, then Matt's going to start picking my nose. (laughs) It it depends upon, has Matt picked my nose (laughs) yet? (laughs) The string beans are maybe in, in defense of that. (laughs) That was just, that was just terrible. Uh, okay. So where can people find you, Matt online if they want to learn more? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, M Winkle. 
Okay. Um, so they ran. That's my alias at Microsoft as well. They ran out of R's that day. So um, <laughs> over the it's it's the DOS character limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's you know the I don't have the dot three after it, but um, so yeah, it's it's uh, on Twitter uh, M Winkle. Uh, that's also my email address at Microsoft. So mwinkle at microsoft.com. Okay. Uh, feel free to send me mail. Um, and then and, it looks like Carl's collected a whole bunch of hype of links here to uh, to the data lake, the store, okay. the analytics. So I think we got Great. all that covered. Good. Perfect. Okay, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So, Matt, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about this. I was excited about it before the podcast, but I'm really excited now. So I'm, I'm going to go out there. My my promise to you is I'm going to write some uh, some uSQL queries once I get some data into my data lake. Okay, awesome. We'll give it a try and you know let us know what you think. We'd love, we'd love to hear it. 